morning, I invite your attention to the 145th Psalm, please. Psalm 145. This is in your pew Bible at page 524, if that's helpful for you. We'll be reading from the first 13 verses. Last week, we made the point that worship and the rest of our lives flow like a river with many currents swirling around within them, intermingled with one another, so that what we're doing on a Friday night or on a Monday morning or on a Saturday flow into Sunday, and Sunday flows forward into Monday and into the rest of our lives. Worship rises out of our lives, and our lives flow out of our worship. It's inevitable, isn't it? There's an organic unity to our lives, though I will add this. We are never so genuinely ourselves as we are here in God's house in worship. We are Christians, and so what we are here in this sanctuary, when we are genuinely adoring the Lord humbling ourselves before Him, listening to Him, singing to Him, communing with Him. This is what we really are. And this is the foretaste, isn't it, of what we shall ever be in glory in the next life. All the dross, all the sin, it'll be gone. What we are in this house of worship is the expression and it's the experience of what we truly are in our heart of hearts and what we ever shall be. But the river of our lives uh, is actually part of a much greater flow and longer. We are here now, yes, but when we are worshiping here, we find ourselves a part of a much greater, larger thing than ourselves. This fact is conveyed to us many ways in Scripture. And this morning we encounter a particularly powerful expression of this truth in the beautiful words of Psalm 145 after we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of finding ourselves among a great host, a great throng of the generations of those who worship you in spirit and truth. Now we pray that you will, uh, through the power of your word, impress this upon us and help us to find our place in this stream. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 145, beginning at verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all He has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. As Debbie and I made our way along the Rhine River with R.C. Sproul, visiting some of the great cathedrals and churches of Europe, we came in Worms to a beautiful church building. Not quite as impressive as the huge cathedrals we had seen, but still very lovely in its Baroque splendor. I would tell you its name in German if I were confident that I could pronounce it. There are 21 letters in the uh, single word, but translated it is Holy Trinity Church. It stands majestically on Market Square, so you can almost imagine how it towers over passers-by and dwarfs the very modern, very temporal-looking coffee house that stands next door. There it has stood for these hundreds of years where generation after generation worshipped one rising after another past. As we walked through the door, we were treated to the sound of the organist uh, playing a blind woman, playing music also hundreds of years old. How many voices of Christians long past in the glory have blended with those notes and echoed off of the walls of that sanctuary. Well, the thought of it causes to rise up in the heart a sense of connection, doesn't it? Connection with the generations that have gone before of Christians, uh, the rich heritage that is ours of the faith that spans not only generations, but centuries, not only centuries, but millennia. That is a sanctified sense, that sense is. It's, it's a holy and a biblical sense. And more than that, it points to a holy and biblical reality. It's what David was describing here in Psalm 145. Though, as I say, we could go to many places in Scripture to find it. We are deeply connected with the generations of the faithful who have gone before us. Or at least we ought to be. And we must be connected with the generations that follow. Alas, typically speaking, the modern American Christian has very little sense of that connectedness. It's been stolen from us by the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age that thinks little of the church of old, or the wisdom of the Christian ages. I could demonstrate to you in a number of ways and with evidence, the, certainly by the ease and alacrity with which the church in our day and place makes changes in her thinking and in her behavior and in her practices with very, very little thought about the wisdom that's found in our Christian fathers. And perhaps the saddest result of our 
indifference to our Christian history is the ignorance and the indifference that is passed to the rising generation of Christians for having lost that connection with the past. Dear flock, in as much as we find ourselves described here, we must confess it too. We have to confess that there is an arrogance about us in this regard, isn't there? We moderns are want to think that because we talk on cell phones and because we fly to destinations in airplanes and work on our computers that we have no need of the wisdom of the past. But that conceit, that despising of the connection between the past and the present and the past, present, and future is not to be found anywhere in the Bible. In Holy Scripture, the generations are connected to one another. Every generation of Christian believers belongs to the church as a whole, past, present, and future. Here in this beautiful psalm, the point is made in ways in which, with which we've become very familiar, haven't we? Because we've read it in our Bibles and because we've heard it so often in this house of worship. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. In our parlance, we'd say things like the covenant of the Lord continues it remains the same. The gospel remains the same. The kingdom of God, the same. It's been the same since the beginning and it shall be the same until the end. How does the writer of Hebrews put it? Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now how is that fact made to live in us and capture our thinking and our believing and even our acting? Well, chiefly through worship. Chiefly through worship. One generation will commend your works to another. Where? When? In church. In worship. Remember, this psalm is a song. And it's a song written for use in the worship of the church. So what we have here in this psalm is the church um, exercising her intergenerational connectedness by singing her intergenerational connectedness, right? Our connection with those who've gone before us and with those who follow is both expressed and preserved here in worship. Follow the line of the faithful backwards in history and you will find that that line runs right through the center aisle of Christian worship services. I said earlier that this is not the only place in the Bible where we find this. It isn't. We could turn to Exodus. We could turn to Leviticus where we find long passages concerning the regulation of the worship of God's people and read things like this. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Well, who are the people of Israel? Well, look around you. Here we are. We are the people of Israel, Paul says in Galatians 6. Or as we're reminded of the 
baptism and worship just last week. God says he keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Nowhere is this more powerfully the case than right here in worship. It's just a microcosm of this reality. Uh, some of the most wonderful times I spent in worship as a boy were times when my folks allowed me to sit with my grandparents. I can still recall the exact colors, purple, green, and orange, and uh, evening hues from the stained glass that spilled over us in the wooden pews of Calvary Reformed Church of a Sunday evening as I sang with my grandpa and grandma. My grandma had a beautiful soprano voice, and Grandpa also worshipped with gusto. <laughs> he, he sang every word of the hymn aloud. And being a man of economy, a true Dutchman, why he sang it all using just one note uh, for the whole time. You might remember that slick salesman in the uh, play, um, The Music Man, describing singing as nothing more than sustained talking. Well, that's how my grandfather sang. But more than I think I know, and perhaps more than I ever will know, the confidence of my heart in the truths on which my life is now built the almighty power of God in creation and providence, the redemption we have through Christ's blood, the assuring presence of the Holy Spirit everywhere I go. That confidence I owe to the monotone gusto with which my grandfather sang them right into my heart. One generation to another. And now my grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, are receiving the same in worship. That, I say, is but a microcosm because though what I've just described is four generations, the truths, the lyrics, even in many cases the tunes were long since before him passed from generation to generation to generation, down to me and down to the next. This connection between the past and the present and the future of generations, it's found all through the Bible, and it's of immense practical implication. Why are we, why are you and I to remain faithful to the Lord? Ask the Bible, and it answers because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have run the race before us and are urging us on. In Psalm 78, which we'll sing together in a little while, we read that the godly must be faithful to their responsibilities. Why? So that the next generation and the next and generations yet unborn will have faith in the Lord. And, of course, Psalm 78 brings us right back to the sanctuary again, doesn't it? Back to worship as the place where we look both back and forward 
and in the process find that we are a part of something, dear flock, that is so much greater, so much larger than we are ourselves. This connectedness, it's not an accident, dear flock. It's something to be preserved. It's something to be exercised. It's something to be nurtured by us deliberately and self-consciously. And if not in worship, when the church is meeting together, then how will that connection be preserved? That's the tragedy of contemporary worship, so much of it, and it's fascination with the flotsam and the jetsam of the transitory, the evanescent, the ephemeral, always, always looking for something newer, something bigger, something better, something brighter. And so rather than serving as a point of connection, it has actually served to disconnect the church from its past, from her past, from her heritage, from her ancestry, and as a result, from her responsibility to the generations that follow. So what's the practical application of all of this for our worship? How do we maintain that connection between those who have gone before us and those who come after and the generation of the saints gather for worship? Well, first and foremost, and this may seem like kind of a no-brainer, but uh, we use the same Bible. We use the same Bible in our worship as, as they did. Its most ancient parts, you know, are almost 3,500 years old. And the new parts are uh, two millennia old already. We do this by reading our Bible in worship, singing the Bible's hymns, praying the Bible's prayers. Doing this, we... Join our voices to the Christians of the ages, past and future. We and our children and our grandchildren together just now in this house or a moment ago confessed our sins this morning with the same words with which Daniel confessed in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. In our singing, we mix hymns from the various ages of Christian history. We sing psalms, and in so doing, we join with the saints, with the church of the ages, and singing the longest sung words with the largest number of Christians who have gone before us. We join with the Lord Jesus and with the disciples in the upper room after they left, right before they left for Gethsemane. Remember what they did? They sang a hymn that was already by then a thousand years old. Every generation of God's people up to that point had sung those words, and everyone since has done the same. We have sung that psalm, whatever, whichever of the Hallel psalms it was. When we sing in this house of worship, Shepherd of Tender Youth, or O Light That Knew No Dawn, We are, you know, they were sung in different languages for sure, but we are singing the most ancient hymns that have come to us from early Christianity. And and so with the hymns of Ambrose and the hymns of Gregory among the early church fathers, John of Damascus or Bernard among the medieval uh, church fathers, John of Damascus, I mean, um, Luther, 
among the reformers? When we sing the hymns of Paul Gerhardt from the 17th century, the many great hymns of Watts and Wesley and Newton from the 18th century, the hymns of Ellerton and William Walsham Howe and Horatius Bonar and scores of other great poets from the 19th century, we are doing what Jesus did. We're doing what Jesus did. Joining our voices to the ages of Christians. Joining in the Christian heritage and what they've always done. Singing hymns of praise to God and confessing our faith using the very words and oftentimes even the very same tunes. You may ask then, well, have we nothing to add? Well, of course we do. And even this morning, we've introduced, we've added a new hymn to our worship repertoire that, we, that expresses the biblical faith in reference to the, to, the, to, the, to the spiritual experience of the church in the 21st century in which we are living we must make our contribution, mustn't we, to the stream for the benefit of those who come after us, to add to the heritage, to add to the tradition that will feed and nourish their faith for decades, for centuries, maybe for millennia. Charles Spurgeon comments on the psalm. He says that there shall be a tradition of praise. Men shall hand on the service. They shall make it a point to instruct their descendants in this hallowed exercise. We look back upon the experience of our fathers and sing of it. Even thus shall our sons learn to praise from the Lord's work among ourselves. The generation shall herein unite. Together they shall make up an extraordinary history. Each generation shall contribute its chapter and all the generations together shall compose a volume of matchless character. So reading the Bible and singing are two ways that we take our place among the greater community of faith. There's another way and it's one that we've exercised this morning as well and that's the use of creeds and the creed that we use this morning to confess our faith. I've, I've often reminded you that taking the Nicene Creed upon our hearts and upon our lips, we join our voices to 17 centuries of Christian believers and worshipers. It is as if, if in heaven the confession never stops being heard, isn't it? As one generation's voice is added, even as another passes into silence, and still yet another begins to be heard and takes its place in the world. The same when it comes to reciting the Lord's Prayer to Him, praying it to Him, even standing and kneeling for prayer. All habits of Christian worship that spans the centuries. Now it's our worship, of course it's our worship of Christ Presbyterian Church of Owensboro, Kentucky in the year of our Lord 2020, but at the same time, it is the worship of the Christian church of all times and places. 
I was interested to read last week of the icons that the Orthodox Church use in their, you know, fill their sanctuaries. You, you know, the pictures of angels and Christian saints. I read that part of the purpose of those icons is to recall to the worshipers that the church consists not only of the local congregation or even the conglomeration of local uh, churches, but it consists also of believers of the past, the past days, the great multitude of the redeemed now gathered together around the throne of God. In those churches, they actually have a ritual It's called the sensing of the icons, in which they take a censer filled with smoking, you know, incense, and uh, and they swing it around and they they lay smoke over the icons. And the point is that in the assembled host of the worshipers gathered before the Lord, there is included the dead in Christ as well as the still living. Indeed, in some Orthodox thought, the icon is actually thought to mediate the presence of the saints, so they're in some real way present in the Christian worship, as, for example, Paul told us. Remember this in Corinthians uh, when we were studying that the angels are here with us in our worship. Well, we don't employ icons, obviously, in our worship we, and for principal reasons, and we We don't believe that the Christian dead are here present with us in our worship. But the larger biblical idea is certainly exactly that. It's it's biblical. We have tried as a church to keep a connection uh, with the historic church in maybe small ways uh, with the symbols that we use. You know, as as we enter this sanctuary Every Lord's Day, uh, we pass under what is called there a Christogram. And it is actually one of the oldest of the Christograms. In fact, it's uh, almost universally recognized and utilized around the globe. It's called the Cairo, or Chiro, uh, in which I've been delighted, by the way, to see Seth using prominently in our electronic and online uh, presence as well. It consists of the superimposed Greek letters chi and rho, which are the first two letters of the Greek name for Christ, Christos. It was displayed on the uh, labarum, the military standard used by Constantine the first in A.D. 312. The symbol on the front of the bulletins that you've had in your hands today dates back at least to medieval times. It is uh, popularly used in Eastern Christianity. Small things, yes, but these are ways in which we're trying as a congregation to maintain a connection with the Church of the Ages specifically in our worship. This is our duty, dear flock. It's, it's our duty to be true to the heritage of faith and the love of God that have been handed down to us and, and to pass that down to the next generation of Christian worshipers. Well, how are we going to do it? Well, the way we do this is with a liturgy 
with a, a form of worship shaped and driven by the Bible, biblically informed. The best worship that we can give, shaped and driven by the traditions that have been shaped and driven by the Word of God. And it is in this way that our children and our grandchildren find themselves rooted in and connected to the whole kingdom of Christ. Here in this sanctuary, dear flock, we are joining with believers in Jesus Christ spanning thousands of years by doing what they have done in the order that they have done it. Every Lord's Day. It has been said that it is in the service of Christian worship more so than in any moment or event of human life that time itself recedes into the background and we find ourselves in the eternal present. Brothers and sisters, in this worship, we find ourselves connected with the past and the future in a way that nothing else connects us or can. Reading Christian bo books about Christians who have gone before us, leaving time capsules for those who are yet to come, these things are wonderful. They're good. Yes, read Christian biography. Read Christian History. These things are marvelous, but they can never connect us or cause us to belong to something so much greater than ourselves as powerfully as what we are doing right now. Worshiping God, as the psalmist says, one generation commending his works, God's works to another. During the First World War, a regiment of a cynical English colonel was billeted in a French village. Nothing delighted the colonel more than the opportunity of taking a rise out of the old village priest. One Sunday morning, he passed the church as a handful of people were leaving Mass. Good morning, Father! He shouted to the priest at the door. Not very many at Mass this morning, Father! Not very many. Oh, my son, you're wrong, was the reply. Thousands and thousands and tens of thousands. And of course, he was exactly right. It's true for us today, dear flock. We're a small group, aren't we? To the naked eye, a tiny little church tucked into the tiny corner of western Kentucky. But take a look through the lenses of Scripture, through the psalmist's eyes, and you see that gathered here, we are a part of something so much greater, so magnificent, that only the sight 
of heaven. Only on the day of resurrection will we really begin truly to comprehend it. Amen.